0: Hello, hello,
1: hello, and welcome to Grace Online.
0: We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today
1: because we know that God is already here and he is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message.
0: In this passage, in this moment in the Gospel of John, things get personal for Jesus. Word comes to him that a man named Lazarus is gravely ill. Lazarus, however, is more than a man. He is a friend. Not once, but twice in this chapter alone, John tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, very much. And if you actually look through all the gospel accounts, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it becomes clear that these are three people who were closer to Jesus almost more than almost anyone else. In many ways, they were as much followers of Jesus, I would argue, as the 12 who were originally called by him. Now, given this, given the closeness in relationship, we would think, naturally expect Jesus, hearing this news, Lazarus is sick, gravely ill, that he would immediately head home to the home of his friends to be 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 at the bedside of Lazarus. But if you're familiar with this passage as we're entering into this story, Jesus waits. He doesn't act right away. Instead, after two days, he at last heads toward the home of Mary and Martha to attend a funeral. As on the way, he informs his disciples that Lazarus has died, but at the same time, he also says death will not be the last word in Lazarus's life. With that introduction, let's come into the story in verse 17. Let's look at this scripture together. Again, the words will be on the screen. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Next slide. Oh, I guess I ended there, so you have the Bible there. (laughs) I got so caught up in it, I forgot, sorry. (laughs) Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, my my conversation partner today is not who was originally scheduled. Unfortunately, the person who was originally scheduled became ill and was not able to be a part of this, and so I needed to pinch hit to find someone, and when you're pinch hitting, you go close to home. (laughs) And so the person who's going to be my conversation partner today is the director of our children's ministries. She also teaches fifth grade at our school, but I know her a little bit better than that. She's my wife. Could we welcome Beth (laughs) Twightman as she comes forward today? Oh, boy, this is going to be good.
1: (laughs) Hi, honey. Hello. Oh, that's loud.
0: (laughs) All right. So if you haven't been with us, we, again, craft this around this passage. We've been talking about this together, uh, even more so than I have with anybody else because we live together. (laughs) Um, And it's really this message is crafted around three questions. And the starting point of the conversation is always coming together and asking the huh, what question? That's what I call it. It's from listening to the passage, receiving it. What question, I always ask my partner, um, do you have that would be- help you to better understand this passage? And so, Beth, would you briefly share what your question was?
1: Um, yes. So, obviously, it's a passage that I've heard many times. And put in this context, it was kind of interesting to take the passage and know that I was going to need to talk about it. So um, just kind of that stream of consciousness, the first thing that came to me reading through was why is Martha making seemingly contradictory statements back to back in verses 21 and 22? So um, to recap, she says, Lord, or says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So in doing that, it just, it seemed kind of, I don't want to say schizophrenic because that's a medical term, but she goes from one thing to immediately the very next sentence, but and saying something else, and it kind of struck me that idea of kind of um, that heart, heart versus head of a person in grief. You know, you can say one thing and then immediately you're onto something else and you're just, you know, having a hard time staying consistent with your thoughts. Mm.
0: We talked about this and recapping this part of the conversation, which will lead us into the rest. It's, I think... It's really interesting and encouraging I would also say to see Martha's development over this passage It's an encouragement for us. There's a lot to learn, but also a lot for us just to resonate with Um, And what's one thing I want to point out that I did point out to Beth that we wouldn't notice and, and again I know we only look to verse 26 as I made painfully obvious But if you have your Bibles open to the rest something you'll notice when Mary comes into the picture is Martha and Mary Greet Jesus with the exact same same statement. They both say the same thing Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died. Now, notice what they don't say. Both of the sisters don't say, if you had come, as if referring to his two-day delay, but if you had been here, expressing regret that Jesus didn't didn't happen to be present when Lazarus fell ill. A misreading of this passage is to think that if Jesus had left right away, Lazarus would not have died. If you read this passage carefully, Jesus even says on his way, Lazarus has already died. He was going to die before Jesus got there. Lazarus, the implication is, died soon after the messenger departed who came to Jesus, informing him that Lazarus was ill. So Mary and here are not saying, if you had come sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. What they're saying is, you could have, they recognize he couldn't have arrived in time to prevent Lazarus' death. But they're, 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 yet there is a tension there, some sense of almost a pointed question, maybe even an accusation of, if you had been here in the first place, when my brother got ill, you could have done something. Does that make sense to everybody? We track them with that? And and we relate to this. There's a a real personal edge to this. Where were you, Jesus? I thought you loved my brother. I thought you cared about us. Something that I pointed out to Beth, and we won't go down this rabbit trail because it was a point of disagreement, so this is like if you want to talk to us on the patio, you can hear about where we were going back and forth on this. (laughs) But... Um,
1: something I don't, think, else I, don't, that... I, I don't think everybody needs to agree. I think that's the one thing about scripture is it speaks to people sometimes in different places. So disagreement's an okay thing.
0: I agree us. with that. I agree with that.
1: <laughs>
0: wow. Okay, here we go. All right. Uh, the, I'll, I'll share this with you. And again, just to, so if you want to talk more about it, but I think what's interesting in this passage is that we obviously know of another story we're, we're very familiar with, with Mary and Martha where Martha's all about being busy and doing something else, and Mary is at the feet of Jesus, right? And Jesus affirms Mary for doing the right thing, where I perceive that here John flips the script in that Mary stays at home, whereas Martha's the one who comes out. And and I would argue that part of why Martha comes out, and this is an interpretation, is Martha is really overcome by, sorry, Mary is overcome by her grief, where she doesn't come out until she's called. Does that make sense? Whereas Martha comes out, right away. And again, in this exchange, Mary doesn't make the same, have the same kind of dialogue with Jesus that Martha does, which is interesting. Anyway, the point is, there's definitely some tension here, some grief for Mary and for Martha. And if you go further in the passage, even the neighbors who are gathered kind of mumble amongst themselves, John tells us in verse 37, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Meaning, basically, if he had been here. So this, there's this sense of, you know, not that Jesus could have arrived in time, but if he had been here in the first place, things could have been different. Now, because of this, I think that Martha, even though there's grief, I think Martha's word here and this idea of a contradictory statement is less of a rebuke and, as Beth has said, more of an expression of her grief. But I also think in the midst of her grief, it's not schizophrenia. I am okay with that term. It's as much as it's grief, it's also at the same time an expression of her faith. And those two things can exist at the same time note that what note what Martha says had Jesus been present Martha believes that her brother would not have died that's a statement of faith as much as it is a statement of grief she's not lost her faith in the midst of this in the midst of death she's holding on to it but here's the key Martha's faith is based upon her hope for the future Martha's faith is solely based on what Jesus can and will accomplish later right when Jesus responds to Martha he says He gives a promise. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know, there's a part of Martha that may hear when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, as a bit of a platitude. You know what I mean? Your brother will rise again because, you know, Lazarus is going to rise in the resurrection. Martha's being orthodox. The orthodox view among Jews was at the end of the world, yes, the dead will be raised, will be raised up. So in many ways, she's just hearing Jesus is kind of proclaiming their faith. And so in some respects, that can almost sound a little bit like a platitude. Hey, don't worry, yeah, he's dead now, but he'll rise again. And 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 I wonder where we want you to sit in this, because of an important detail in this passage also is part of why Martha has very little hope of anything happening now, is he's been dead for four days. And it's very significant that John points that out. Why? Because again, Jewish people believe that the soul remains in the vicinity of the body for three days, hoping to rejoin the body. I don't know how many of you knew that. On the fourth day, in Jewish understanding, the soul departs. You get to the fourth day, not gonna happen. So the fact that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days means there can be no possibility of his soul rejoining his body. Four days, in other words, when John tells us that is basically his way of saying, this is a seemingly hopeless situation, it's done. Martha has therefore no expectations of anything happening here and now in the present. She's not expecting anything from Jesus beyond if this isn't a platitude, the hope of consolation, the encouragement of what she believes will happen later. Again, she's thinking in eschatological terms and that's just a fancy word for saying she's thinking about what's gonna happen at the end. And that's what she thinks Jesus is referring to. He's just affirming the faith of her people. But what happens here is Martha has no idea what Jesus is about to do is more than affirm her faith in the resurrection. He's about to challenge her understanding, her orientation towards resurrection. And that's why right after Jesus says to her, as he brings her focus notice, back to the present, back to his person, he says, I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me even though they die will live and whoever lives and believes in me will never die and then says do you believe this now i put myself in martha's shoes this is a really challenging question right especially because lazarus is in the tomb and martha's grief is so fresh those who believe will never die of course they will die lazarus will die again Jesus will die. Everybody dies. I don't know if you've been keeping track, but the death rate has a st- uh, has held steady at 100%. <laughs> so Jesus seems to speak, it's not so much I think Martha who speaks in contradictory terms as Jesus seems to speak in contradictory terms. But what's in- important to see is this is not a promise that believers will not die physically. This is not a promise that believers will not die physically. Something we, I think we often miss in the church is that it's part of our faith is we understand that death is the consequence of sin. Death is the consequence of living apart from God. And yes, our sins are forgiven by Christ. But here, this church, the fact that our sins are forgiven doesn't mean that the ultimate consequence of sin doesn't still play out. I think many of us struggle with that. We've been forgiven, but... Death still plays out because that's the ultimate consequence. Jesus is promising that life is possible after death. Jesus is promising here to Martha an experience of life that swallows up the sting of death, where death no longer becomes an end, but death becomes a prelude to resurrection. So in other words, Jesus is not asking Martha if she believes he's about to raise her brother from the dead. That is not what he's saying. Jesus is asking her if she will be led by faith beyond a quiet confidence in the resurrection as a future promise to embracing Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise now. And we didn't read this verse. That's why I got caught up in it. But the next verse, Jesus' self-declaration, I am the resurrection and the life, moves Martha, did you notice, beyond her earlier statement as she declares, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So, wow, I mean, that's very rare for people to just be that clear in declaring who Jesus is, but I want you to just see, again, be encouraged, Martha's faith goes up and down, as ours does, that even though Martha makes this statement, it soon becomes clear she doesn't really comprehend what she's just said, who Jesus is, because Jesus then goes from there towards the grave and says, take away the stone, and Martha freaks out. Uh, um, Even though, mind you, she just professed To Jesus, when he arrived, even though I know God will give give you whatever you ask of Him, Martha's not so confident now that Jesus knows what He's doing. Um, Does Jesus understand about death? Martha says, "Lord, um, already there's a stench because He's been dead for four days." But Jesus is undaunted by the stench of death, and the stone is taken away, and after repeating his promise of where this would all lead to, to God's glory, praying out loud for the benefit of the crowd, Jesus cries, Lazarus, come out! And we know the rest of this story. Here's the point, point: this is where we're gonna launch from. Jesus, with this self-description, I am the resurrection and the life, seeks to move Martha and us from an abstract belief in resurrection, something that will happen someday, later, to a personalized belief in resurrection in a life that can begin here and now. Jesus, you'll notice, declares himself to be the resurrection. Jesus declares himself to be the answer to the question, the resolution to our greatest universal shared problem, death. Again, The takeaway here is resurrection, as we often talk about it, isn't some abstract philosophical concept for us to examine or for us some future event for us to wait for. The way Jesus presents it here, resurrection isn't just something Jesus wants to do for us in some generic way at a later date. Life and death aren't just under Jesus' authority. They are his essence. Jesus is, as the scriptures will declare him later, the beginning and the end. Before the the crucifixion and the first Easter, Jesus declares here he is the resurrection and the life because his words here point forward to what he will do as he is raised from the dead and lives forevermore. And so in light of this idea of not thinking of resurrection as we often do as something future, as something that gets done to us, but thinking of Jesus as the resurrection, that's kind of where we ended and that comes to the next question which is, okay, given that, so what? What connections or insights do we make because of that? And that's to me? That's to you.
1: OK. Um, I, I think that that's very, I, I, we both really came out of the passage seeing this this shift in future to versus present. And um, I really resonated with, we both writ, wrote down in our notes the idea of that being, maybe the thought of it being a platitude. Because um, I think we've all had times where um, either we've been on the receiving or the, the giving end, because in, in the midst of someone's grief, it's really hard to know what to say or how to receive different things. Um, and I think we tend to, to focus more on the future because it's an easier place to exist in. Um, and kind of, t- if you look, I think that Jesus really did want her to focus and, and the whole point of that statement, when he says, do you believe the first time, was kind of to take out of that maybe those contradictory statement that i kind of originally saw in terms of maybe the stages of grief that we kind of talk about anger or denial or bargaining um and just kind of be stretching her to kind of get away from that feeling versus faith Mm -hmm. um where where we kind of what he was alluding to before in terms of the mary martha contradiction that maybe both of us saw is I was really struck by the previous time when Mary and Martha um, are in the scriptures and the, um, Mary being at Jesus' feet, and I really viewed her as she was being present. Mary at the time was being present in the moment with Jesus, and Martha was focused on the future. I got to bake the bread. I got to clean the house. I got to have guests coming, and I need to prepare, and that was still that future view, um, whereas jesus said you know mary has chosen the better thing she's here with me in the present and i think this is kind of a kind of that hearing of the shepherd's voice of him trying to stretch her even further of that previous lesson of saying um be present in the present is going to be more important you you i'm this i am the resurrection and life is meant for you now um so in that sense it's not a platitude Mm. and um the teacher in me then looks at what Jesus said in terms of, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives in me by believing will never die. That statement is full of present tense verbs. Um, and just that statement being so strong in that the tense of the verb that you use is very relevant. And so I think he's really reinforcing that idea of being present. So. With all of that, then I say the so what is, there's obviously a lesson for us to to draw upon here too, is this idea of if we are believing, I mean, she had a statement where she totally expressed her belief, and then kind of this idea of speak it and now act on it um, for us as Christians. And so the idea of transformative faith is fruitful living that we should be doing in the here and now. Mm.
0: I I really, I think that's, again, as we talked a little bit about this spot on, I think, and I think that's just chewing on this idea of resurrection, kind of going off of what you said, something that's really important here, but also important, really important when Jesus is raised from the dead, is I don't think that we do justice to what the Bible proclaims to us in resurrection. What Jesus does here, and what he will later happen on Easter Sunday, is not resuscitation, it's resurrection. Again, the significance of that Lazarus has been dead four days is he's not, if you see the princess bride, mostly dead.
1: <laughs>
0: he's dead. And, and what's really emphasized when we talk about resurrection versus resuscitation is there is no natural recovery from death. Hear that. There is no natural recovery from death. The dead, the dead in other words, live again not by their own power but only by the intervention of the one who created and sustains life. And so what Jesus offers us when we celebrate the resurrection, and many people get this wrong. I talked last, a couple of times back about how we even envision heaven. You know, Jesus does not offer us an extension of this life that arises out of death. Jesus doesn't offer us life after death. Jesus offers us life beyond death. Life that is no longer bound by death. And when you hear that, life that is no longer bound by death, not just when we physically die, but life that is no longer bound by death even as we live right now. And this is so important, what we're talking about, because too many of us think and act like we have to choose between the two, the present or the future, right? I mean, some of us here, I want to ask for a show of hands, choose to live in the moment at the denial of the future. We don't think about death. We don't talk about death. We don't go there. We don't lie, get into what might happen later. There's too much going on right now. We'll deal with that when? Later. And this is even true among Christians, I find. We're told that Jesus can save our life, so we pray the prayer. We confess that that we believe that Jesus saves us, But we act like this is a future reality, as if our salvation in Christ is some kind of IOU that's delivered on a later date. I can't tell you how many Christians I sit down with and they'll say, oh, I prayed the prayer, Jesus is going to save me. No, Jesus has saved you. It's not something that's later. But again, for many Christians, we think of this as a later thing. It's a then and, 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 and that's great. We've got Jesus in our back pocket, but right now we have to live in the now. We have to live in this world. And so every so often we might, you know, check our insurance policy to make sure it's still good with Jesus. But that's still later. Guys, come on, let's be realists. We have to live now and survive in the real world, right? And then there are others of us who aren't so much fixated on the present. There's others of us who are jumping ahead and wondering or even worrying about the future. Again, I won't ask for a show of hands. Some of us are obsessed with the question of what happens next. What happens when you die? We fear the unknown. Many of us who are fixated on the future get stuck because we want answers. We want guarantees. You'll notice in this passage, as he often does, Jesus doesn't answer any of Martha's questions. Right? <laughs> So we're constantly fixated, those of us who want answers, on what's going to happen next, what our time will be, what can we expect later. And again, this happens even in the church. It's one of my soapbox issues. I won't stay on here very long. But even as Christians, we're so busy looking for signs of the end. Is Jesus coming back? That we miss the reality that Jesus is already here. We're so consumed with tomorrow that we miss today. But the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection that is Jesus, that he is that life, that resurrection life, is this ability, this power, where we can hope not only for the future, but also can have power in the present. That we don't have to choose anymore between the two, the present or the future. We don't have to sacrifice one for the sake of the other. Both our future and our present are determined not by death, but by Jesus. And again, still chewing on this, what does it look like in your life if your life is no longer under the shadow of death, but under the light of resurrection? How does that change how you live now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. um, I don't know how many people are familiar with this concept kind of in education of a fixed versus a growth mindset. Um, I try to teach my class if if you're always telling yourself in your mind, I can't do this or this is too hard, odds are it's going to be hard and you won't be able to do it versus saying and switching your mindset to. I can't do this yet, or this is hard, but I'm going to keep working on it and I'll get it. By having that growth mindset, it makes you have the ability, and I tell this to the kids, to approach something in a totally different way. And I think what I kind of take out of this is to have us as Christians recognize that we should have a resurrection mindset, that if we are, you know, kind of doing what Jesus is trying to have her learn in this passage, We look at things a lot different. We're going to have a freer form of present-day life. I think it it kind of plants your feet firm and um, allows you to not be bogged down by guilt or shame or different things that have happened. If you kind of realize those things are buried and I'm not going to pick them back up, I'm going to move forward now, it allows you to not focus and be so bogged down
0: well, and, and what, I, what I love about that, I'm just going to amend it a little bit. It's not, that we, I, we, it's not that I'm going to move forward. I can move forward. It's this idea, because we often live, our, 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 we put it upon ourselves or the world puts it upon us that, no, no, you, ne- you need to stick, you need to hold on to that guilt. You need to hold on to that shame. You failed. You screwed up. You messed up. And Jesus sets us free from that. It doesn't mean that the consequences that we still don't walk through, but that doesn't define our lives anymore. We're not talking about putting on rose-colored glasses and acting like, "Oh, the stuff that happens—that's bad. It's no big deal." Jesus grieves here. Jesus weeps. But it is saying that that doesn't have to be what defines your life. That doesn't be what doesn't be it has to have to be what shapes your mindset, shapes how you. And, and for many of us, that's we are living more in death than in life. We're holding on to bitterness. We're holding on to unforgiveness. We're holding on to fear. We're afraid, and we will not face that fear, which we can face any fear, because if our greatest enemy has been taken out in Jesus Christ, the greatest fear we have is death. And if death in Christ becomes not an end but a gateway to a new beginning, we don't have to fear anything. Because, and this is so big to me, death is never the last word in our lives, not just physically, but in our lives here and now. And I said this to Beth. I'll share it with you guys. One of the things that kills me, no pun intended, (laughs) More and more as a pastor in my time and as a a pilgrim with you is the church has got the worst track record when it comes to death. We of all people should be modeling for the world not to live in fear of death and yet the church is rampant in its fear of death. And the greatest example of this is churches refusing to die. Church that was huge, all of a sudden comes down to 25 people, nope, we're not closing our doors. Uh Uh-uh. Because if we do, then that's it, then we're done.
1: No. Sometimes God likes to just rearrange his troops.
0: Exactly. Sometimes sometimes God calls us to die because it's in dying that we actually truly live. And many of us will shake our heads, and some of us have lived that experience. Some of us have experienced resurrection. And once you get a taste for it, I, I was having this conversation with our kids, and they had an interesting answer, which I won't share, which is I said, do you think Lazarus, we often don't talk about him, do you think that Lazarus lived differently when he was resurrected I do you think a guy who came out of a grave where people peeling up the grave cloths lived his life this I'm not saying he lived a perfect life but I think that that fundamentally shifted
1: resurrection mindset resurrection <laughs> mindset
0: that's right what does that look like for us you know and it's so important and another quick example is Jesus Jesus shortest scripture everyone knows Jesus wept You know, and you've probably heard a lot on this, but it's really important to understand that I absolutely believe that part of Jesus weeping in this moment is sharing in the grief of everyone else. But that is not fundamentally what John wants us to see. It's not, it's there, but that's not what John is pointing to. Why does Jesus weep? The actual language that's used here, I don't know if you know this, you know, and so short, the actual language is, is not so much Jesus wept as Jesus was angry. Jesus was outraged. What's Jesus angry about? Some people are like, well, he's angry at the lack of faith of the people that's there. No, he's not. What, you know, they're, they're operating when, in the midst of what they have. He's angry that Lazarus died. No, he knew Lazarus was going to die. He told his disciples on the way. He's angry because he's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples on the way. He knows exactly what he's going to do. So why is Jesus angry? He's angry, if you read it carefully, he's outraged by death
1: not the way it's supposed to
0: be this is not the way it's supposed to be he's upset by a death impregnated world he's upset by the all the violations the loss that death brings into this world all the tears all the regrets all the mourning all the brokenness he's upset he's ticked off because of all the death takes from us the sin that it causes the unbelief which surfaces when its cold grip is felt jesus is outraged by the way, it cripples, death cripples and denies our humanity the full potential of the abundant life that Jesus came to bring, that God always intended for us to have. And here's my point if we're living resurrection, in a resurrection mindset and a resurrection minds, we, life, we should be ticked off too. We should be passionate that death is the enemy. My God, I am getting so tired of people. Like, death is a friend. Just embrace death. Death is a friend. I almost said a bad word. <laughs> From a Christian mindset, that's hogwash. (laughs) Death is a violation of everything that God intends. That's why Jesus is angry and he cries, and we should be angry, righteously angry. And that's where our grief and our compassion needs to have a little outrage. Not, well, they've gone to a better place. Oh, well, you'll see them again someday. No, grief, this is hard, this is awful, with a sense of this is not the way it's supposed to be. Because oh. grief without outrage is just being mere senti- its mere sentimentalism.
1: Well, and I think it's back to what we said earlier about the platitude. I think just having been on the receiving end of that, it's really hard to to hear that and to not then be outraged almost by the platitude mm. as well. Um, personally and in in, um, in our Our lives, we suffered a miscarriage. And it was my first pregnancy. It was obviously a really difficult thing to go through. And I think the thing that struck me the most was a person that came to me and was just like, well, you'll see your baby in heaven. And not that there's not truth in that statement, but in that moment, that was the worst thing to possibly (laughs) say. But I think it was out of that idea of trying to give comfort but not, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but it just, it, I think I was wanting to feel outraged. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's the right place to exist in, in grief. I mean, that, we, that is one of the stages, anger. And I think it's an important thing to have to, to walk through on, and understand in that process as well.
0: I think, I think that's spot on. And to balance this, it's not just about the outrage. Because if we just have outrage, if we're just mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore kind of mentality about death, that without grief and compassion is not self-righteous anger. It's a balance. It's the ability to grieve. We should grieve. It's the ability to have empathy and compassion, but at the same time not to have resignation. Not to have this, well, that's just the way it is. That's saying resurrection will come later. This is supposed to be, this is where in the midst of facing death, how do we look for opportunities? How do we see resurrection now? And that kind of gets us to the now what question. What does it look like to follow Jesus more closely in our day-to-day lives with what we've learned from this conversation? What does living resurrection life now mean? What does it look like in our day-to-day lives?
1: Well, I have to admit this was the hardest thing for me to (laughs) enunciate. You gave me a rough passage to fill in on. Um, Love you, hon. Because to me, to, to kind of put into tangible words that which you hopefully are doing somewhat naturally is a hard thing to do. So this is where I spent most of my, my time and reflection after our conversation, I think. Um, and I think uh, the understanding that as believers, um, we're full of the presence and the power and the life of God in the present. And we need to have confidence that um, and hope that despite circumstances, and in this case, we're obviously very much focused on death, but I think in, the term, in, in terms of living, we can group suffering and pain and, and things into to that as well, but we're not going to escape pain, we're not going to escape suffering, we're not going to escape death, um, but in the midst of those things, we have to really cling to the idea and the greater understanding that we have something which is hope. Um, it's kind of like if you, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, I know our family, we talk in movie lines, sorry. But um, in the, the movie, Harry Met Sally, um, if you kind of know the end of the story, if I, I think he says to her, when he realizes that he's finally in love with her, when you realize when you love someone, you want the, your life to begin as soon as possible, you know? And we, we know that final ending. And as a result, that should fill us with, um, Kind of that, leaving the things buried, the the death to self in a sense, which I know we we kind of had a little bit of a dis. We don't agree on that term per se, but I think it encapsulates what I mean. <laughs> um, but the whole idea is, I mean, in John also earlier, he says, "I came that they might have life and have it abundantly." He wants us to have it currently abundantly, and so what does that mean? Basically, practically, I tend to live my life that it's not about me. (laughs) That's kind of what I come to in the sense of, um, you know, prune away the dead things, the guilt, the shame, leave those behind, and then choices that I make in the here and now, I'm not making out of fear. Um, I mean, I shared this story with you. As a teacher, and unfortunately, it's one of those things that you wish, you know, wasn't a reality, but um, we live in a reality where I could go to work and not come home as a teacher um, with violence in the classroom. And that's something that I'm angry about. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I don't think um, any child should have to, like we do at the beginning of the year, have to go through lockdown drills and learn where they have to sit and what they have to do if somebody with horrible intent comes onto our campus and as a teacher one of the hardest things for me to do is to go through that drill with them because in that moment you really are shattering the innocence <laughs> of kids and um, it's kind of diametrically opposed to how I parent and how I want to teach and the environment that I want to create. So. Um, We go through the logistics of that drill, and there's obviously tons of questions, and the kids want to talk about it and different things. But ultimately, in in the end, I walk behind my desk and I take out a very big baseball bat, (laughs) which I show them that I keep there, and ultimately I tell them, if anybody comes through that door, they're going to get through me before they get to you. And I can say that without fear and without it being a platitude because I can truly say I mean that, because they're not getting to my kids, and if, if I'm still standing, <laughs> they're not getting to my kids, and um, that's. I mean we've we've discussed this because I've come home and and literally cried that I have to do that with my class because it's not the way it's supposed to be, but. I've, I've said to him, I mean, I'm sure that there's people who are in law enforcement and different things that have this same conversation with their spouse, that if that's how it goes down, I have no, zero regrets, that I've lived a life, I have the assurance of knowing where I'm going, and if just one little kid behind me gets a life based upon something like that, I'm okay with it, and don't be sad and mourn that. And I mean, so that's, that's a tangible example. I, I mean, it's an awful example in the sense that I, I hate that we have to live in a world where that exists, um, but...
0: But I think what's, is when you share that, and, I, and again, it is an extreme example, but, but something within that that I think we can take beyond the extreme is you're not saying that out of a place of resignation of, well, it's my job. I'm an adult, they're kids, I guess I'll do this because I. Ha- you're really saying that, and again, it's, a, it's not what anyone would want to say, but you're saying that out of a place of confidence that death is, I'm not afraid of death.
1: They call me Mama T after that.
0: <laughs> but it's, a, again, I'm not, you're, not, you're not afraid of death. Some people might do that and say, I really don't want to die, but, I, but I'll do it if I have to, but it's a different thing to say, I'm, again, Jesus puts it that way. True love is laying down your life for another, your willingness to lay down your life for another. I think that that... That speaks to it. I mean, I think when we talk about this idea of what does it look like to get, I mean, that example is powerful, but in the day-to-day of our lives, as we've kind of already alluded to, living by faith rather than living by fear. That's resurrection living. And what do I mean by that? Not living in fear of failure. Not living in fear of your wounds. Not living in fear of endings in your life. <clears throat> we talked last week, I think, about for many of us, and I'm not there yet, and I may have, this is a, an ending I'm going to have to walk to, but retirement. For some people, retirement's a death, and they never get back up. Retirement should not be the end of our lives, and it isn't the end of our lives. And again, some of us, back to that analogy, some of us, we can't get, get, get over, we don't have work anymore, and some of us try to get, deal with retirement by filling our life with all kinds of stuff until all of a sudden we realize we're just not satisfied. Just, just, you, know, you, you can only take so many vacations. You can only do so many things. It's not facing death. It's not it's not living in fear. It's not letting our identity or our destiny being defined by our losses or our failures or our wounds. It's not holding on to negativity. Living the resurrection life is not holding on to negativity. And my God, do we need that word today? Because people are holding on to negativity. It's election time, people. How you feeling? <laughs> I thought so. Holding on to anger, bitterness and rage, turn on the news and people are already angry and we haven't even done the elections yet. And they're already bitter and anticipating being bitter when it's over. It's maintained. it's not, it's, 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 you know, living in, in death is maintaining a defeated or apathetic posture. How many Eeyores do we have in this room? Oh, well, it's probably gonna get worse before it gets better. Oh, I might as well not try. Eeyore. Eeyore. Winnie the Pooh. (laughs)
1: Winnie the Pooh. Or an apathetic
0: posture. Doesn't matter, whatever, I don't care. How many of us have given in to cynicism and pessimism? A lot of us, because that's what sells on TV and on the radio. Positivity isn't what sells people. It's cynicism and pessimism. And based upon how the things are going and what's getting churned out, we love it. We live for it. But we're not living for it, we're dying for it. Living in the past. And again, this is a big one. How many of us here are victims of living in the past? The past is great to look back into, but how many of us are living there? Oh, and I know, and I've said it to you as your pastor, gosh, I've heard it so many times in 15 years, if we could only go back to grace the way it was in the 80s. In the 90s, those were the good old days. And some of you are still living in the 80s and the 90s. Those days are long gone. And that doesn't mean it's bad what it means is maybe you're missing some of the resurrection thing God's trying to do in the present because you're not willing to die to the fact that we're not living in the 80s and the 90s at grace anymore. Living in the resurrection now means instead of being fixated on what we've lost or what we, how we've failed or where we feel mortally wounded, we look to and we abide in Christ. We follow Jesus and perceive life beyond the deaths we endure. Instead of pessimism, cynicism, apathy, all the things I listed, it's instead because we're looking to Jesus through Christ, perceiving and pointing to new possibilities, fresh starts, second chances that aren't in the distance but that are right there before us. Where, what can we learn from? What can good, you know, if we are believe in a God of resurrection, church, God's doing something. What's he doing? What's he raising up? But what we go is, well, I may not like what God's raising up. Ah, <laughs> but you're not saying God isn't raising up something, you're just saying it's not what you would prefer. That's a different issue altogether. And Beth alluded to it. Living the resurrection life, what does that look like daily? Jesus tells us plainly, and again, it's not a word we like to hear. Living the resurrection life is dying to ourselves. And I'm going to make a statement that's provocative, shocking. (laughs) Until we die to ourselves, we cannot be resurrected. Until we die to ourselves, we cannot be resurrected. And that means we cannot experience resurrection life now. I want to say this again because I really think it's underappreciated. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin. Being forgiven means we don't have to fear death. But it doesn't mean we don't have to face death. And this is where a lot of Christians who pray the prayer and have Jesus in their heart, when all of a sudden they get hit, they they take a hit. When all of a sudden they have suffering, when all of a sudden they hit death. God, where are you? What kind of good God are you? And it's the same God who said, hey, I never said you weren't going to have to face the consequences. I just said those consequences weren't going to be the last word in your life. I just said the consequences weren't going to define who you are. Again, it's like the child who the parent says, all right, you know what? You did something wrong. I forgive you. But you're still going to have to go through the consequence. You're going to have to make amends. You're going to have to do...
1: What? I see that as a teacher too.
0: <laughs> and, and we would, I think most of us say that that's not good parenting, right? Good parenting is you got to realize there's a consequence, but the consequence doesn't have to be the end-all, beal or define you. The last thing I'll just say about living resurrection life that I think also is important is living resurrection life means promoting life. It means championing resurrection. One of the things that, I lo- that got me this time about this passage that I just found I'm still chewing on so it's a little bit raw is how Jesus ha- resurrects Lazarus, but he has other people take off the grave clothes. Take off the clothes. Release him. And what I'm chewing on is Jesus loves to resurrect people, but he's invited us. He's called us to be a part of the unbinding, the unwrapping. And that means that living the resurrection life means supporting life whenever it's threatened in the name of the one who raised the dead. It's confronting, hear this, church, election day, time's coming, that's just one example. It means confronting the stinking places of death and decay, not with more cynicism, pessimism, and outrage, but with hope. It means championing resurrection for those who are dying, for those who fail, for those who experience loss, for those who've fallen and believe they can't get back up. And ultimately what it means, living the resurrection life, means dealing with the stench of death rather than trying to, to cover it. Dealing with the stench of death. I, again, in this passage, Martha's like, don't open that up. It's, it smells already. It's going to smell really bad. And Jesus says, I, I I got no problem with the stench of death. It, it will pass. It means living the resurrection life. When I say being willing to deal with the stench of death, it means being willing to enter into the loss of not only of our own life, not only the failures or wounds of our own life, but living into, we're living into get, entering into the loss and failures and wounds of someone else's life. The stinkiness. It means getting our hands dirty as we come alongside others, walking out of the tomb, the tomb that they find themselves in.
1: Love your neighbor as yourself.
0: Love your neighbor as yourself. And part of that love is resurrection love. Not loving your, yourself you know, well, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner, I'm a, all these things we pile on or let others pile on us, but I love myself. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I love you, and my love for you is beyond your failure, your sin, your losses. That's my forgiveness. You aren't defined by that. That's not what your life is not going to be shaped by that unless you choose to have your life shaped by that. And again, when we choose to have our life shaved, shaped by our losses, our failures, all these things were things by death, then that's where we're not experiencing resurrection in our lives.
1: I think, um, gosh, years ago, gosh, really, I don't know if it was towards the beginning of us coming here, um, but we were at a Women of Faith conference, and one of the speakers um had a had a thing where she wanted you to kind of pretend you were taking up a mirror and looking at yourself and kind of looking at yourself um and I think especially women do this with appearance and with different things maybe more so than men I don't know I'm not a man but um the idea of looking at yourself through resurrection eyes and um if you if you were really truly looking at yourself through the eyes of Jesus He's not going to see any of that stuff that we bog ourselves down with and that we really just need to put that away and um not just physical things but also the emotional those those things that are the things that are keeping us and keeping us bound and keeping so to speak with the with the metaphor of the the burial cloths around us and to to take those off um is that resurrection mindset that we're talking about love that image
0: i think that's a, a powerful image for for all of us, not just women. I think men in their own way look in the mirror and see things differently than the way Jesus wants us to see ourselves as well. We're near time. I offer these closing words, as I'm grateful to have Beth as a conversation partner. Church, my brothers and sisters in Christ, in the midst of disappointments, tragedies, failures, injustices, the losses we face, We are held and loved. We are determined, not by the powers of death, but by the risen Jesus. The one who not only restores life, hear this, but the one who is life, who is the resurrection. Death is powerful. Make no mistake, death is powerful. But death in Jesus Christ is not all powerful. Death, or what the apostle Paul calls our final enemy, has been defeated by Christ. Jesus is the place where death ends and life begins, and it's okay. Be encouraged. I am, because we, like Martha, believe, and yet we struggle to grasp what this means. With Martha, we confess what we're still comprehending, but this is what we confess. Biblical faith is resurrection faith, trusting in a God who can produce life where we can only see death. And to be that kind of people, to walk by faith like that, we have to experience resurrection ourselves. And so I'm asking you this morning, do you hear Jesus calling your name today? Is Christ calling you to come out of the deadness of your own life? If you hear his voice this morning, why don't you walk out of that tomb that you're in right now? Do you want to stay bound up in bitterness any longer? Do you want to remain wrapped up in unforgiveness? Isn't it time to be released from the chains of addiction that hold you? Isn't it time to be free of all the doubts, all the struggles, all the failures that you continue to wear, that you put on day after day like grave clothes? Are you ready to bury the past? To put whatever it is, whatever it is that happened to you behind you. Are you willing to let others help? What's keeping you from being fully alive now? Because in Jesus Christ, eternal life begins for the believer in the here and now, or it never begins. Hear that. It never begins if it doesn't begin here and now. If we don't know Jesus as Lord over the many deaths that we die in this life, how can we have confidence that he will raise us at some, un- some future unknown date? How can we claim Christ's promise for life after death if we're not claiming his promise for life after birth? Are we ready for life beyond death, abundant life, resurrection life? Because, my friends, the stone has been rolled away. And Jesus is calling, do you hear him? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do we believe this, church? Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful to know you as our tender-hearted Savior, one who comforts us in a variety of expressions of death, loss of life, loss of love, the death of dreams and longings, hope and trust, the burial of what once was and what may never be. No one hates death more than you, Jesus, no one no one feels its horrid implications more profoundly than you do. No one grieves its ugly violation more deeply than you do. No one longs for the day of no more death that you promise in the end more earnestly than you. No one has done more to secure death's obliteration than you. Jesus, today we're so thankful. We know you as the resurrection and the life. We proclaim what we continue to struggle to understand, that your death was the death of death itself. And so we rest our oftentimes heavy, confused, and yes, grieving hearts in your loving, resurrected hands. Jesus, as you raise Lazarus from the dead, renew and restore to us, restore us to new life, leaving in the grave, O God, all that prevents us from loving and following you fully.
1: And all God's people said, Amen.
0: If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.